All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from the Borough of Queens, as I usually do, uh, here in New York City, and it is the 15th day of November 2022. I do want to remind you that I publish a newsletter called Jay uh, Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. It's focused primarily on junior mining stocks, junior exploration companies, companies that actually find and then develop real wealth, real money, if you will, gold and silver uh, in the ground. And so um, I think a very exciting time uh, for that sector right now, and you'll hear a little bit more about that uh, in the second segment of today's show. I uh, do want to mention uh, Chen Lin. What is Chen buying? What is Chen selling? Uh, You can sign up for his letter uh, as well. Uh, go to questions, uh, go to um, what is Chen buying, what is Chen selling is the name of his letter. ChenPicks.com is the place to go to sign up for Chen's letter. Uh, also, I'd like to encourage you to send along whatever comments you have about this show to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Questions the number four, taylor at gmail.com. And our sponsors for today's show, those that make this show economically viable, Irving Resources, Noble Resources, Gold Bull Resources, El Oro Resources, Reina Gold Mining, and Timberline Resources. I've titled today's show, The Mechanics of Fiat Money Destruction. Alistair McLeod and Quentin Henning are my guests today. Human beings have been capable of believing, ever since Eve ate the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, that they could be like God simply by obeying without limit their hedonistic desires. The big lie most relevant to the topic of this week's show is the one told by Lord Maynard Keynes in 1935 when he suggested that societies should become rich or actually could become rich by consuming more than they produce. To lend credence to that lie, Keynes required honest market-driven money, gold, be replaced by fiat money, that is money manufactured from debt. Fiat money has no intrinsic value. It is a faith-based money Uh, And as we have just seen uh, with the FTX cryptocurrency debacle that is now playing out uh, in the crypto and financial markets, when the debt upon which money is manufactured can't be repaid, that money quickly becomes worthless. Also, what Keynes didn't reveal and politicians chose not to know was that at some point in time, as debt grows, outgrows the income of a national uh, or international on an international scale or on a national scale, the more fiscal and monetary stimulus that are created, the less positive effect they have on the growth. And then at some point in time, like now, for example, 
monetary and fiscal stimulus actually turns negative. So, for example, the fiscal stimulus that the Biden administration forced into the economy after Joe Biden became president was a major factor in the surge of inflation that is now more than offsetting the nominal wage gains of workers. Among institutions, the most vulnerable of all during either an inflation or a deflationary outcome are banks that have loaded up their balance sheets with enormous amounts of debt relative to their equity holdings. In the second half of today's show, I will ask Alistair McLeod to help us understand the market dynamics that banks are now facing that guarantee their inability to continue making loans uh, if they desire to keep their, their banks solvent. How then does he expect governments to respond to an economy, to an economic downturn that results from a lack of lending by banks, banks acting in their own interest, uh, not being able to make loans? Well, economies, especially economies like this one that is based on credit and debt-based money uh, cannot survive. So how will the federal bank, how will the federal um, government and other governments around the world react to this uh, uh, impending economic debacle. Looking at long periods of history when major economic calamities take place, such as during the Great Depression and during the inflationary 1970s, major systemic changes in monetary systems are usually implemented. There are a growing number of analysts who think we are on the precipice now of a major monetary system reset. This is one of the most, if not the most, uncertain times that I can recall, uncertain in many different ways, geopolitically, monetarily, um, just a lot of unrest and, and division in our country, more than 70, in the, all of the 75 years of life that I've lived so far, I can't remember a time that's been more tumultuous uh, than this. The 60s certainly were a time when there was a great deal of, of uh, difficulty in our society. But I can't recall a country that was so divided as it is now, nor can I, uh, even in those days and in the 70s, remember an economy that was in such perilous streets as this uh, current one is. And so um, through all of this, uh, all of these uncertainties that we are experiencing, one thing that has been as stable as anything, and that is gold. The purchasing power of gold has not changed over thousands of years. What we can say uh, with regard to the current situation is that despite the decline in stocks and bonds this year, gold has held up reasonably well. Just before we went to the show, uh, before the show, before we went on, on the show live today, I checked uh, and gold was down by just 2.89% so far this year. Now that compares with an S&P that has lost 16.5%. And long-dated treasuries, my goodness, they're down 30, 30% or so. So despite very few people having any desire to own gold these days, relatively few at least in America, uh, gold is performing its function of preserving wealth relatively well. And so it makes sense to look for companies that produce real money, that is gold, which retains its intrinsic value for the long term and thus avoids these uh, cataclysmic declines in wealth. When we come back uh, from the break, world-renowned exploration geologist Dr. Quentin Henning will join me to introduce, well, I think five or six different exploration projects that he's really excited about. Those are in the gold and silver fields, primarily, primarily gold and silver exploration uh, projects that he's working on or he uh, is investing in uh, through Crescat Capital or with Crescat Capital. 
Uh, so Quentin will be with us to talk about some of those. Uh, one of them are actually a sponsor to this show, but uh, the others are not. And they're stories that I think uh, if you're interested in investing in the exploration sector, you won't want to miss uh, what Dr. Quentin Henning has to say. So uh, we are going to go to break now, but don't go away. We'll be right back with Dr. Quentin Henning. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm glad to tell you that Dr. Quentin Henning is with me again to share some of his top picks with you today. And some of you who are older, like me, can remember an advertisement for a brokerage firm named E.F. Hutton. Remember, uh, those of you who can remember, there was an ad on television that proclaimed that when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen, at which time all of the people walking around on the street stopped and cupped their ears so that they could hear what E.F. Hutton was saying. And so that's kind of the way I think uh, when I listen to Quentin Henning. And so I want to hear what Quentin Henning has to say about exploration companies. Uh, he has a great reputation, has found a, a, been responsible in the discovery of some world-class deposits over the years, having worked for major companies and then more recently for juniors and now working with Crestcat. Uh, Capital, which is a company that is doing very much invested, one of the few that are invested in the exploration sector. They seem to see the potential that most other investment firms are not recognized, or at least not to the degree that Crestcat is. And uh, within the last couple of years, Quentin joined that firm formally, and um, uh, and so he's involved every week on on uh, on Fridays at about two o'clock Eastern time, and sometimes a few minutes later. Uh, to uh, tell people about the, the companies that 
that Crestcat is investing in and, and the reasons for it. And Quentin speaks to that. So it's really great to have him today with us to um, to share a couple of the stories, a few of the stories that he's most excited about. Uh, thank you, Quentin, so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Jay. It's uh, it's really always good to to hear from you. Uh, you are a frequent guest on this show, uh, sometimes talking about our sponsors. Today, most of them are not sponsors, but there's very exciting stories. Uh, uh, and uh, I, I guess maybe the before I ask you to talk about the first one, Laurel Resources, maybe just tell our listeners what it is, talk in lay terms, what it is that you look for before you suggest to Crestcat that they commit some capital to uh, exploration projects? That, that's a really good question. And I'm kind of glad you started there because um, this opportunity I've had to work with Crestcat has really given me uh, a chance to you know, focus on allocating capital in the exploration space. Uh, and you know, what we like to focus on are potential discoveries of, you know, of world-class magnitude, you know, like tier one, Mm -hmm. uh status okay we're looking for for big discoveries and even if they're very early stage you know if the the story is compelling if, the, if there's a enough evidence uh the you know the superficial evidence uh footprint of the the alteration system the geochemical expression of the system uh looking at analogs in the area you know what what might a new discovery look like um, those kind of, of data we, we bring back and I, I kind of pick them apart. I talk with the company usually at length about what their exploration strategy is because we don't, we like to, to make sure if we invest money that it's allocated towards exploration. Um, you know, we, for the most part, we've had very good experience with companies. We, we have meaningful discussions about how they're going to use the capital uh, that they, they get from these raises. And, and allocated to to make discovery and you know and in some cases I'm uh, fortunate to even get to help you know on the technical side with this mm -hmm. which I like to do so it's it's really a combination of factors it's really about looking at the the opportunity you know the the geological geochemical and geophysical aspects of the opportunity and looking at uh, of course jurisdiction is very important you know we got to have a jurisdiction where there's demonstrable ability to build mines I don't want to invest in countries where there's no history of, of building mines or there's opposition, you know, social or otherwise to to it. We want to invest in places where we know there there can be mines built. And, you know, at the end of the day, um, and then the last component, of course, is, you know, working with the management and exploration team that's uh, going to focus on the prize. They've they got to explore. And the goal is to find discoveries that are going to be purchased by major mining companies. You know, this is this is really the product of, of most junior companies out there is to make discovery that's going to ultimately be, be sold. Yeah, yeah. Most juniors uh, are not successful, or it's very very few and far between that. Uh, or the exploration is one skill set, and then production and uh, you know building, engineering, and building and producing is is another skill set. Uh, and so, uh, best best to do what you know uh, you're best at, and just stick to your knitting, as they say. Well, let's let's start out by uh, one of the companies that you that you like a lot, and it is a sponsor to this show, Eloro Resources, uh, E L O E L R R F in the U S. Uh, Sixty nine point nine million shares. I sold it earlier today, two dollars and twenty two cents in U S. money, one hundred and fifty four million dollar market cap. It's a company with a, a silver tin rich polymetallic deposit and it's a big one in Bolivia 
Uh, I believe they're going to come out with a resource pretty soon, or just just give us a story on, on this one again. Sure. Look, uh, very early stage, we we invested in this. It was back in 2020, kind of the, the a couple months into the pandemic, in fact. And, you know, the reason I, I jumped in or wanted Crescat to jump in is because uh, the exploration team certainly knows what they're doing. Osvaldo Artsy and, and Bill Pearson, very top-notch team. But the, the evidence they showed me was compelling that this was – uh, a mega world-class uh, silver polymetallic system like one would find elsewhere in Bolivia. And there's several examples, okay, in Bolivia. Uh, I would say the Potosí district, which is a historic mining district that is still actually in active production, uh, artisanal miners miner, uh, is huge. It's produced, you know, a, about one, one and a half to two billion ounces of silver, at best estimate. Mm. Uh, but then you have other mines like San Cristobal, which is in Bolivia, which is, uh, producing mine. It's a silver zinc lead mine that's been operating for about 15 years and absolutely produced huge, huge amounts of of those metals. Okay. And this, this Iska Iska property, uh, when they first showed it to me, it was clear the footprint, the geology, this collapsed caldera setting, everything about it smelled like a major new discovery. Uh, they started drilling in September of 2020. They haven't stopped drilling. In fact, they've been drilling many, many holes I think they're getting upwards of around 100,000 meters. And at this point, they've, they've demonstrated there's a volume of rock that's on the order of two cubic kilometers that mm. is, is mineralized. Okay, it's not all mineralized, but you know, within that two cubic kilometers, there, there's uh, a substantial amount, probably you know, on the order of 30, 40, 50% of the area at any given location is mineralized. So you know, we're looking at a deposit that could be hundreds of millions of tons what's it likely going to deliver? Well, I think it'll deliver a very typical uh, uh, resource for this type of system. It'll probably have, you know, around 30, 40 grams silver on average. Uh, you know, it kind of comes and goes. There's areas where it's higher and lower, you know, but you got to take it as a whole, about 30, 40 grams silver. Uh, but then the, the lead zinc is probably going to be combined about maybe a percent and a half or two. And then it's got this tin component. This tin component is a real... Uh, add, value add because uh, tin, a uh, very high price, about $20,000 a ton, uh, plus or minus right now. And it's got about maybe 0.1 to 0.2% tin mm. at any given location. So this thing is truly a, you know, kind of a cornucopia of different metals all compacted into one. Uh, they've done enough metallurgy to show that it produces very high quality concentrates that are going to be saleable anywhere on the planet. And it's, it's really, you know, in, in March, I believe, is when they're targeting uh, their, their initial resource estimate. And I think it'll set the table for, uh, you know, to, the market will clearly see that this is a world-class discovery, but also set the table for, uh, you know, what could be a compelling uh, story to, that, that will be advanced towards production over the next couple of years. Bolivia is, in my view, a very, very good location. Uh, they've they've made great strides to improve the political and, and you know investment uh, climate in the country. Uh, they're basically where Peru was in the early 1990s. They're they're really mm-hmm. shifting to a much more friendly environment. So I I think that uh, I think this is a great discovery in a jurisdiction that is turning around very quickly. Oh, you think uh, so? In March of, of next year, we uh, a maiden resource. That's the target date, anyway. Uh, might we expect something, you know, hundreds of millions of ounces of silver potentially? I mean, you're talking 30 grams or something like that over yes, a like huge this, amount of rocks. Exactly. Look, I, my, my guess is, uh, you know, and on the order of uh, 
400 million on the low end, million tons, maybe on the high end, even get closer to a billion. I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. it depends on the resource modelers. Sure. But yes, I mean, if, if you're talking those kind of grades, you know, you're talking about hundreds of millions of ounces of silver, but also many, many millions of tons of zinc and lead mineralization or met, metal, you know, metal mm-hmm. in the ground, as well as tin, like an enormous amount of tin. Okay. So this thing's going to have a very, very good ending. All right. Uh, a second one that I know you're in love with. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that because I don't know. Maybe things have changed, but Snowline Gold Corp. And I can't imagine that you're not in love with it after we saw the uh, assays that were announced, uh, I guess, just this morning. It was just phenomenal. Absolutely. Uh, and yep. Just to tell us about Snowline. Yeah, look, uh, it's an amazing discovery. It's in the Yukon. It's a, what we call a Tintina type or tombstone type gold system. It's associated with what we call reduced intrusions. Uh, in this case, the reduced intrusion is a, a, a diorite or granite diorite body that brought up uh, just a huge amount of gold, and it, it produces a fairly disseminated style of gold mineralization. Uh, it's got a little bit of bismuth and tellurium, but it's, it, these things are typically very metallurgically friendly, and that's what makes them work. You know, these things run a gram or two per ton. In this case, the high-grade core is probably uh, looking on the order of, of you know, uh, it's probably 250, 300 million tons is my best guess, of maybe uh, upwards of two grams per ton, something like that. So that's a huge, huge discovery in itself with a halo around it that's uh, starting to take shape. Um, I do think the system is going to take some more drilling next year. Um, What I'm seeing is as we see data come in, the picture becomes more and more clarified. It looks like the high-grade core, which is now well-established, is uh, a very, very large size, but it also appears to extend to depth it looks like it has some uh some deep deep roots to it so that's going to have to be tested next year but it also looks like the west and southwest side of the intrusion uh the the mothership we'll call it is also uh, mineralized out into the hornfells into the, oh. the country rock so you know this this thing has really taken shape you know i've said publicly several times you know on the low end i mean like this this is almost certainly a 20 million ounce discovery could it be much more yeah i think i think so especially when coupled with some of the nearby uh, targets they have, uh, like the Gracie target, which is just across the hill. Okay, this mm-hmm. is these are enormous systems, and this one is well endowed with with grade. You know, typical Tintina type might run a gram. This one is running more like two grams. Okay, that's a, a big big plus. People say, oh, it's remote. Well, you know what? It's it's not so bad. There's actually a winter road not too far from there. Uh, I've met with the the ministry. You know, the various politicians and. And, you know, uh, civil servants that work in the Yukon to discuss this location, the ability to build a mine here. Uh, you know, I've also looked into the First Nations. This is a First Nation territory that that is where Eagle is built. OK, so we're dealing with the same, uh, you know, First Nations uh, in, in, in every respect. too. So, you know, I mean, this thing is, is a, an amazing discovery that will become probably the biggest, in, in my view, the biggest single gold deposit discovered in Canada since Hemlock. Wow, that's that's saying something. Well, I want to thank you very much for uh, this. Certainly, I learned to know of this story through you, and and also my subscribers are very pleased as well. We've done very well with it, uh, having purchased it early on. Well, you know, a, a, a fraction of what it's selling at now two dollars, uh, around two dollars in U.S. money today. Um, One hundred thirty-two million shares. Okay, well uh, then, which leads me to another story, and you sort of teased your listeners. Your viewers at Crescat Gets Active, uh, the, the video that you guys do every Friday about the next Snowline target, 
uh, and I've sort of learned uh, to know that that maybe that might be tectonic metals. Maybe <laughs> you just uh, comment on that real quickly. Certainly, look, uh, Tectonic has a project they call the Flat Project. It's in western Alaska, which is at the almost the opposite polar extremity of the Tintina Belt from Snowlines Project. But uh, they have what is absolute hands down uh, a very very large Tintina type system. Footprint of the the alteration in the gold system is on the order of uh, about six to eight square kilometers. It's hu absolutely huge. It's actually not far from Donnelly Creek. Uh, so, you know, there's an analog nearby, although this one is not refractory. Okay, I've, I've one of the tests I had, you know, to make sure we wanted to invest was to look at the metallurgy. And mm -hmm. the metallurgy of uh, this flat project is not refractory. So it is free milling, which is very important for these types of deposits. Uh, now that the company kind of has the green light to go ahead and, and explore a flat, they, they had a few things they had to work out. Uh, they've got those worked out. Uh, you know, we're we're jumping in both feet here. I think it's an, another major, major discovery in the making. There's about 50 or 60 historic holes on the property. Actually, some of them drilled, or many of them drilled by Robert Friedland uh, back in the 1990s. Oh, believe it or not. Uh -huh. and, you know, you might say, well, why did Robert Friedland? Well, he found this little deposit in Mongolia called Oyotogo. And <laughs> then a lot, you know, drifted, his, his attention drifted to Mongolia. But uh, it, he left what is a, apparently amazing, amazing discovery in the making. So, so we're we're into that one. We've also, you know, people see yes in the past 24 hours, we've jumped into another story called Rackla. I won't go into details there, but it's in the Tintina Belt. In short, we're seeing um, we're seeing the Tintina Belt is as being one of the most prospective uh, gold belts, you know, for exploration, uh, prospective gold belts in in the world in the first, uh, you know, first world we'll call it where you can build mines. So we're, we're going all in on these discoveries. Might you be talking about that new company, uh, Crestcake gets active this week? Possibly. Uh, we have our 100th anniversary. If, if we have time, I, I will, but um, we have another things lined up for this week. So it's, okay. it's uh, a funny week. <laughs> okay, well, some time to come. Well, real quickly yep. here, we're, we're going to run out of time. Brixton Metals, tell us about yeah, that you one. Know what? I'm going to talk about Brixton and Pacific Ridge. Uh, and okay. The reason I'm going to talk about both of them together is because uh, earlier this year, you know, with copper at 450 a pound and yeah. talking with Kevin and Tommy, they wanted more exposure to copper. So we've jumped into both Pacific Ridge and Brixton at what I'll call cheap prices, early stage in, in some respects, discovery. Uh, but both of them now have dis demonstrable major, major copper and copper gold discoveries. Okay, so Brixton has Camp Creek, which uh, is a buried porphyry, but uh, it, it could be a billion tonners. Uh, it's running about 0.7%. Uh, BHP recognized the potential, too, and they've jumped in both feet. They, they now have 20% of uh, Brixton, so we're very happy co-investor alongside them. We also have 20%. Okay, um, we have Pacific Ridge, which now has two, I count them, two, uh, major copper gold discoveries of Clayul and, and RDP both look like they're lining up to be um, major discoveries of the ilk of red crest. You know, so they're very gold rich copper porphyries. Uh, they're associated with alkaline rocks. Both of them look like they're deep rooted and they, they drilled a bunch of holes this year. Uh, they announced some from RDP that clearly show that thing could have absolutely shoot the lights out. Uh, by the way, that's in a, a joint venture with Anna Fagasa. And then uh -huh. they've they've got a lot of drill results coming back from Clayol here here shortly. So I'd say you know hold on, wait for the news. I, I think we'll see good things out of both those companies. But it really gives us good exposure to uh, exploration in the copper realm. 
copper and and you got gold i think with both projects both companies right some uh yes correct gold, copper gold porphyries and large very large projects and if a bhp comes into the picture you know they have to believe there's something big there they, they exactly won't yeah seeing these juniors like uh brixton have bhp and then um you know anna fagasta into pacific ridge those are very 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 good signs okay um, all right all right, with just a, a couple of minutes left, uh, I know you mentioned before we came on the air, I-80 gold. <laughs> I mean, my goodness. I mean, it's certainly one of my favorites. It's just yeah. absolutely ridiculous. I mean, this is a gold company that they've also come into some uh, some base metals. I guess uh, we'll, Look, we'll just talk I, about it. I'm going to just, just hit this one, Art. This is uh, one of the best things that's happened in Nevada in decades, to be frank. And what they've done is they've taken an, an old district called Eureka. It's way down in south or central Nevada. And it's a district that a lot of people kind of have, you know, looked at, you know, as historic mining. Okay, there's a bit of base metal and a little bit of gold and silver. Uh, you know, some high grades, too. There was pretty good high grades in the camp. But it, it kind of saw, uh, you know, a, a, an end to mining in that era, like in the 1950s. Uh, you know, fast forward, gold was discovered there. Carlin type gold was discovered in the 1990s by Homestake, which then became Barrick. Uh, the Ruby Hill mine and Archimedes were developed, and it it made a great little gold mine, a little oxide gold mine at a very uh, you know a tough time in the gold space. You know, gold was 250 an ounce in the 1990s, but it it made money. Okay, so so fast forward now, uh, you know, Ewan has picked up this ground, this basically consolidated large block of ground. Uh, there at the old Barrick property at uh, Eureka, and he's drilling. And this is exactly what you need to do. In these old districts, drill. Okay, that's it. It's simple. You do good science, you drill, and they are making amazing discoveries. So not only are they finding more and more of the Carlin mineralization, which you know could be multi-million ounces as it's on its own, they're finding this absolutely amazing uh, replacement, CRD-type yeah. mineralization, mm -hmm. carbonate replacement mineralization, which is phenomenally great you know base metal gold silver everything i mean it's just astounding the the dollar value per ton of, of some of these drill intercepts they're seeing these are some of the best intercepts i've seen in a long time and i, I really wish the company well i talked to you and yesterday he's got big plans he's going to extend his expiration as soon as he gets plans of operation set up for the southern area to extend this this new discovery uh he's recognized a porphyry targeted depth he said he, they might even drill that next year um, he's recognizing that that he's onto an, an absolutely immense system here. It could be a you know a, a world class deposit, and and have different you know styles of mineralization. Carlin, CRD, Scarn. That could be porphyry down there. You know, it's kind of a just a, a cornucopia of of different types of deposits in this case. So you know, good on him. Good on him. Oh my, it's an amazing story, and of course, that's one of only about three or four projects that he's moving towards production. Right? I mean, the others are good too. Yes, that's correct. Yes, up at uh, Turquoise, well, in the area around Granite Creek and stuff, absolutely great Carlin-type uh, deposits and potential. He's doing a great job. Yeah, it's really a great story. Well, I want to thank you, Quentin, for, for spending a little time. To, I mean, these are just a few of the stories I know you're following uh, that you're really involved with on, on behalf of Crestcat Capital. And uh, it's always always great to hear from you, always great to get your input, because I know it means a lot. It brings confidence uh, to people who who know your track record, uh, and it's uh, it's you know it's a it's it's actually the best of times to look at this sector because nobody because it's so it's so unloved, uh, and it's exactly at these times we were just talking about um, you know the the uncertainty in the world these days, the uncertainty in our monetary system, the the gold 
Um, yeah, the gold, uh, the dollar-based system, um, you know, is, is wearing thin and, and may be in trouble. Not at any better time than now, even though most people aren't interested. But that's the best time to look at things when nobody else wants them. Uh, and I thank you very much for helping us understand these stories um, uh, so that we can be prepared uh, for when the times get better for this sector. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jay. All right, folks, we do have to go to break, but Alistair McLeod is coming back with me right when we when we return. Uh, he'll have some insights into the banking sector, why the banks uh, are having a, a tough time of this rising interest rate market and what that may mean for uh, for you, for your investments. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Alistair. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Timberline Resources is a mineral exploration and resource development company focused on gold discovery in the world-class mining jurisdiction of Nevada. The company's flagship Eureka Project hosts a significant gold resource and drill-indicated upside potential at nearby higher-grade targets. Timberline Resources trades in Canada under the symbol TBR and on the OTCQB in the U.S. under the symbol TLRS. To learn more about this district-scale asset with exciting discovery potential, please visit www.timberlineresources.co. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Really pleased to have one of our most frequent guests, Alistair McLeod, return. And uh, I think I was just commenting to Alistair. I've seen more and more. I'm seeing Alistair appear on all manner of uh, uh, of, of um, videos and television and so forth. And it's really great uh, to see him because he is uh, obviously a, a much sought-after uh, guest and because he has a lot of great insights. And that's why people... Uh, I think people are looking to them more now than ever because of the uncertainties that are arising in our world, uh, monetary and otherwise. So thank you so much, Alistair, for coming on with us again. I'm honored to be on your program, Jay. Well, it's really great, and I'm glad uh, you're honored because uh, so are we. Uh, goldmoney.com, 
re, uh, the research page at goldmoney.com, folks, is where you should go every Thursday to read Alistair's weekly missives. Uh, great insights into what's going on actually under the surface, not what you get from the uh, propaganda and the mainstream media, that's for sure. And that's why he is of value to us. Uh, I've titled today's show, Alistair, The Mechanics of Fiat Money Destruction, because I think you explain why fiat money given its absence, um, given the absence of gold and silver from it, it really has no intrinsic value. And it, given human nature, it, uh, it seems to sort of this self-destruction repeats itself over and over again. We don't want the constraints of gold or silver to tell us we can't just do what we want to do when we want to do it. And so honesty be damned and let's go with the fun stuff. Um, so it, it, your article, The Great Unwind, uh, the second part of the Great Unwind, you had an earlier one uh, that focused on the banking system uh, and, and how they're getting in trouble, um, the banks. And, uh, well, that's what I'd like to explore with you and have you explain to our listeners. Uh, the mechanics of, of uh, fiat money and, and the banks and how rising interest rates are really causing a lot of trouble. Um, uh, you start out the article, uh, this is your November, November 3rd article, by assuming inflation is rising out of control, and I'm reading some pundits like Lance Roberts or Jim Rickards who think we're heading into a very serious economic downturn in 2023, and that with that downturn, uh, rates will sharply decline, that's uh, inflation and interest rates will sharply decline. Lance, for example, is even suggesting it might be time to start nibbling away at least at long-dated U.S. Treasuries, uh, but it seems to me in reading your most recent work, um, you're not buying that, or at least uh, not in the longer term. Uh, no, I'm not. Uh, the the um, interesting uh, situation that we have, Jay, is that um, banks are under pressure to contract their balance sheets. And that basically means that they need to call in their loans, not new loans, uh, reduce the size of their balance sheets substantially. Now, while they do that on the asset side, obviously, it's going to have exactly the same effect on the deposit side, you mm -hmm. know, in other words, mm -hmm. the bank's liabilities. Mm -hmm. So um, we've got to sort of really understand um, what bank credit is in the context of the economy. Well, uh, virtually all transactions in GDP are conducted or settled in bank credit. Mm -hmm. So obviously, if you get a contraction of bank credit, that impacts negatively on GDP. So that is what we're going to see. And I suspect that, um, I mean, you quoted Jim Rickards. Um, I mean, I suspect that uh, quite a number of people are seeing this and thinking that, well, this isn't inflation. This is deflation. This mm -hmm. is a contraction of the amount of credit in the economy. Mm -hmm. Now, that undoubtedly is true, but we've got to take into account the reaction of the central banks. When the Fed sees uh, bank credit contracting, what it will do is it will pivot. It will stop any thoughts of quantitative tightening and instead go into quantitative easing mode. What it would hope to do also is to stop raising interest rates and begin to lower them in order to protect the economy. That's what they will do. So what we're going to see is a replacement of commercial bank credit with central bank credit. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is in terms of how this um, makes people 
look at the values of that credit, given that it's not anchored to money in any way at all, it is pure fiat, they will tolerate changes in uh, the amount of uh, commercial bank credit without, um, let's say, expecting, um, uh, thinking they, they should change the relationship between the amount of liquidity they hold compared with the amount of uh, spending that uh, they indulge in on a day-to-day -day basis. In other words, they won't shift uh, the general level of prices as much as they do when a central bank suddenly starts increasing the amount of central bank credit. That has a far greater psychological impact on uh, individuals who use um, uh, dollars, dollar credit currency um, for uh, payments. So what you're going to see is not so, I mean, one of the big mistakes that everybody makes um, is they think that um, if the, you know, the price level is automatically tied to the quantity of credit in circulation. No, mm -hmm. it is not. That credit is actually valued by its users and if they start running scared, it doesn't matter what the quantity is or what's happening to the quantity, the purchase mm -hmm. power of that circulating medium will diminish. And that's basically, uh, in a nutshell, what I see happening. The other thing which I think people ignore is that when you get a contraction of bank credit, the shortage of credit leads to higher interest rates. And this is something, this is a problem that the Fed has. Effectively, they have lost control of, over interest rates. Uh, the consequences of that, I think, will um, really tend to make participants in markets uh, begin to run scared because once the Fed loses control of interest rates, we then face a situation where um, with prices currently rising at around about eight, nine percent, um, probably continuing to rise, say, at five or six percent, um, you know, even if um, the deflationary forces do manage to sort of um, quiet and price rises down, mm -hmm. you're still looking at interest rates which should be above the current level by a significant margin. Mm -hmm. And that would be brought about by the contraction of bank credit. Mm -hmm. So the, if in effect, the Fed has a choice to make. Does it suppress interest rates again, flood markets with new quantitative easing in order to save markets in order to keep the cost of government borrowing down, mm -hmm. in order to um, hope that by stabilizing markets, that the economy itself, the underlying economy, Main Street, will stabilize and draw on that confidence from financial markets. Mm -hmm. Under those circumstances, then you know this sort of expansionary move and lower interest rates is fully justified. But the problem is that if they do that, they trash the currency. Mm -hmm. And that is that is the choice that they're going to have to make. My betting is that they have no mandate for protecting the currency. Well, not no mandate, but they have a far stronger mandate for ensuring that the government deficit is, if you like, contained as much as possible from uh, by supporting the economy and at the same time that uh, um, you, you know unemployment doesn't rise very substantially uh, and all those factors in other words they will opt 
to support the economy rather than support the currency. And it's not just the Fed that faces this problem. It is all the major uh, central banks. We're talking about the Bank of Japan. We're talking about the ECB, Bank of England, uh, and obviously the, the, the Fed as well. So that, I think, in a nutshell, is where we are. And um, I would say that it's important to understand that the purchasing power of the dollar, which is no longer anchored to legal money, which is gold, and you know that's a, 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 a something we can explore. Yeah, <laughs> it's no longer anchored to it. Um, you know, you can find that the purchasing power of the dollar, if confidence goes in it, basically will collapse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a con game, isn't it? Uh, when I, uh, so, are you seeing evidence of uh, banks? withdrawing credit now to a great extent because i heard somebody i didn't you know not one that that looks at these statistics uh normally so somebody was i can't remember who it was was claiming that no reason to get worried about a recession now because credit at least in the united states is very strong what are, what are your thoughts on that uh well i one thing that i think we should bear in mind is that the um, U.S. commercial banking system is not nearly as highly leveraged as uh, the Japanese system and as the uh, Eurozone uh, mm -hmm. banking systems. They are extremely highly leveraged with asset to equity, balance sheet equity ratios in excess of 20 times. Mm. Now, that is, that is extraordinarily high. Um, in America, uh, you have got... I mean, I think virtually all the major banks are over 10 times, but we're not talking about that sort of that real extreme. So um, I think I think the way to look at it is that um, in America, it's less so than elsewhere. But even then, mm -hmm. put yourself in the shoes of a banker. Mm -hmm. Where are all your loans? Well, um, perhaps the majority of your loans are into the financial sector. In other words, you're supporting hedge funds. Hedge fund borrowing, for example, you're supporting speculative, speculative borrowing, you're supporting uh, positions in um, uh, the derivative markets. Yeah. Now, um, what you're now seeing is you're seeing the value of your collateral go down. I mean, if someone has lodged uh, the long bond with you as collateral since uh, March 2020, it is actually halved in price. Yeah. So, you know, th that gives you an example of the sort of pressure that uh, a banker feels on the loan side. And he can see that with rising interest rates, even as they've, they've risen above where they went in 2019 um, and 2018-19, they, they're above that level now, mm -hmm. there will be many, many of his customers, both in the financial sector and also in the non-financials, who will be running into difficulties, loan difficulties. So he can see uh, that uh, his level of non-performing loans are set to rapidly increase unless he can get that situation under control as a matter of urgency. Yeah. So this idea that we're not going to see um, a contraction of bank credit in uh, uh, the U.S. economy, I think, is extremely false. You've only got to look at the level of margin debt. Uh, which is published by NASDAQ, and to see how that has actually uh, fallen off a cliff, um, that is bank credit. That is supported by bank credit. Mm -hmm. So that is contract. Yeah. You've, you've only got 
look, you've only got to look at um, uh, the broad money supply statistics. They're no longer expanding. In fact, they topped out. If you look at M3, that topped out in, I think it was May this year, Mm -hmm. and has been continuing to drift lower. And that doesn't necessarily reflect the whole position. Look at the loan officer surveys. They're all turning pretty bearish. So Mm -hmm. you can see that, yes, the conditions are in place for a substantial contraction of bank credit. Yeah, and you didn't mention mortgages in the United States. It's a big deal. They're twice as a, a three and a half percent is a seven percent mortgage now, and it's just absolutely killing the housing market. So and that's such a major part of our economy. You have to think there's going to be some economic weakness that comes along as well, which will start to create, you know, pr- cause other loans to be in trouble on the on the books of those banks. Uh, one thing I want to ask you, Alistair. You know, uh, you've talked in the past about. A lot of the central banks themselves are having trouble now. They're, they're, I'm going to say they're having trouble yet, but they're at least on their balance sheets are not looking all that great because they've they own a lot of um, securities that they bought, at, you know, bonds they bought when interest rates were zero or one percent or two percent or whatever, and now those rates have skyrocketed. So those bonds are underwater. So the, so the that, central banks themselves in many cases, and which leads me to a thought that Jim Rickards has expressed in the past, that he thought the next, after the 2008, the next time around, the central banks themselves may not be in, in great shape to bail people out, to bail companies out, to bail governments out. What are your thoughts on that? Well, that's absolutely right. This is now becoming more of a public issue since um, you and I first started talking about this. And we've seen uh, the Dutch um, central bank, for example, claim that they don't have a problem because they just revalue their gold. I'm sorry, I know they've got a lot of gold, but it's not going to be enough to bail out. The losses from uh, the bonds on their balance sheets acquired as part of the ECB's um, uh, uh, quantitative easing or special asset purchase programs or whatever they call it. Um, The Fed is deeply underwater and uh, they're riding it out saying, well, you know, we're going to hold these things to maturity. So uh, mark to market doesn't really matter. The Bank of Japan is in the most terrible mess. Um, I mean, they've been doing, doing QE since the year 2000. Yeah. And that long-term trend of interest rates, declining interest rates, has now reversed. They're getting deeper and deeper into problems. So really what we have is we have, I mean, one of the functions of a central bank is basically to uh, rescue failing commercial banks. So we're now in a situation where we see insolvent central banks being tasked with rescuing insolvent commercial banks. This is not going to end well. Mm -hmm. And we have this inflationary problem, at least in part. It's not just the the monetary aspect, but it's also uh, some supply chain issues that have come into place uh, in no small part because of geopolitics. Uh, and and sort of uh, green energy initiatives that the West at least has has started implementing, um, and I have to ask you about um, this ongoing war in the Ukraine. I know you felt that it would be uh, certainly not in the best interest of the West uh, to put sanctions on Russia. Um, how do you see that playing out now? Your your idea was that probably what Putin really wants to do is get the United States out of Europe. I suppose so that he can have those markets to sell his his gas and to trade with Europe. Is that is that what you're thinking? 
I think yes, it, it's it's partly that. I think there is this other um, uh, Russian uh, sense of insecurity mm-hmm. when its borders are surrounded by its enemies. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, fortunately, I think since we last spoke, um, there have been moves to try and get the Ukrainians to talk with the Russians. There's obviously been a lot of um, back-channel activity between um, uh, uh, America and Russia. Uh, and uh, I, I think it comes with a realization uh, from the American side that this is proving to be disastrous, not just for Ukraine, but for the whole of the NATO alliance mm-hmm. and also the whole of the world. So they're trying to step back on this. And I note that there are parallel discussions been going on between President Xi and Biden, uh, which look to me like, um, you know, sort of, if you like, overtures towards peace. So on that basis, we have seen a major change. Now, I suspect that the retreat from Kherson is to do with um, creating um, a position whereby the Ukrainians can, can actually talk with credibility to the uh-huh. Russians. Uh-huh. I feel that that is what's, why that's happened. Now, having said that, I don't think we've got a quick fix. We can probably have, a, uh, um, if you like, a ceasefire in, in the Ukraine. But when it comes to um, uh, the situation with NATO. Uh, right. First of all, I think that the Russians are not going to want uh, Ukraine in NATO. And secondly, they're going to want uh, the withdrawal of threatening weapons mm-hmm. uh, in uh, surrounding nations on her Western boundary. So this is this is not going to go away easily. No, I understand that within the administration here, there's some conflict, conflicting views on what should be done. And I might say that if we withdraw weapons from the Ukraine, that doesn't help the bottom line of the military industrial complex companies. So I, I think there's a lot of desire to keep keep some kind of war going all the time, unfortunately. Uh, but, but, you know, and Americans don't see, they don't see why Russia should feel threatened. Why, goodness, they should just let us take them over. Then they would be better off, right? So, anyway. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, but when it comes to sovereignty, that is a is always a no-no. I mean, look at it the other way around. <laughs> well, national so, sovereignty, are we really interested in it? Where where the World Economic Forum wants to get rid of boundaries. We don't have one on our southern boundary anymore. People can come in, millions of people. We don't know who they are coming into the United States. We need labor, that's for sure. So that's good, I suppose, and to a certain extent. But um, I don't know. Does, does anybody really respect sovereignty anymore? I, I don't know. Uh, doesn't seem. Uh, well, I talk to my friends, and I I tell my friends I'd like to see Germany remain Germany and and Britain Britain and you know uh, Denmark Denmark yeah. and everything else, but they they don't seem to get it. So I don't know. <laughs> I think um, I think sovereignty is actually very very important in people's minds. Um, I mean, it's not something that they consider every moment. But if you threaten to take it away, I think they very definitely have an opinion. So yeah. So, I, I, um, yeah, Go so on, I'm, I'm, we have a divided world, too, in, in terms of this issue of Russia. And I just noticed this morning that the G20, there's uh, they're having a lot of trouble getting everybody on board. That is the United States and Britain to get everybody on board uh, to, to, you know, to condemn Russia for their actions. I'm afraid that we're a minority. Um, uh, we look at NATO and friends. We are around about a bit over a billion people. 
Asia and all the rest of it, SCO and so on, you're talking about four billion. So we are in a tiny minority and we're not going to get the support of, if you like, so-called independent nations like Indonesia. Uh, with just a minute left, and maybe uh, take a few seconds to tell us uh, why you think gold hasn't performed better. It's done better in the last week or so. Uh, but it, it's sort of been a little disappointing, even though, as I pointed out in my monologue, that gold is only down 2.3 or 2.4 percent this year compared to 30 percent for treasuries. So it hasn't been bad. But are we going to see some sort of a rally in the precious metals now? I think so, because with this pivot, I mean, it's, it's clear that the word's going out that the Fed is going to pivot. And I think that means that gold will go higher in dollar terms because the dollar will go easier. But also, uh, if you look at other currencies like uh, gold priced in sterling and euros uh -huh. and yen, it's actually doing what it should do is protecting citizens from uh, the debasement, the debauching of their uh, of their uh, fiat currencies. So All it's, right. It's doing the right thing. And remember, it is legal money. Yeah, we have to talk about that another time. Uh, why is gold legally money? Uh, it's been deemed illegal money here in the United States. So uh, we'll, we'll talk about that another time. Thank you so much, uh, Alistair, for being with us once again, for sharing your insights with our listeners. It's always appreciated. My pleasure, Jay. All right, folks. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, John Rubino joins me, as does Michael Oliver and Michael Spreadborough of Noble Resources. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.